This podcast is recorded in front of an unwitting audience. This is True Crime Kent. True crime. You ready to record up? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, no. Just, just want to talk. Record. Nothing. Recording has initiated. You're sure you don't have anything to tell me? Okay. It kind of seems like you're a bit suspicious. I, I do have something to fess up about. I know what. Just go ahead. Okay. My accent isn't completely genuine. No, that's not what I... I used to have a lisp. I still have a lisp, but I've hidden that from you for for some time now. Op, you're making a podcast out of these stories I've been telling you over the phone. Jack already told me. Oh, I would never record these long stories you've been telling me over the phone. Edit them. Add a catchy dance song with banjo music, and then call it True Crime Kent and take advantage of your personal monetary gain. I would never. I'm I'm offended. Uh, I'm getting 25%. I've already talked to Jack. Just come on. Ah, okay, cool. So are you ready to make another episode then? Uh, Yeah, but I need to clear something up real quick first with you two. I've I've also got to get something off my chest. How dare you betray me? Really? Ah. After after you... Oh, uh, never mind. Look, you know that nifty little voice that I do every time I tell a story during the, like, the pinnacle, and it, and I sound, like, all ominous and impactful? Yeah, the one that's, like, warm butter pouring into my earballs? Yeah, what about it? Yeah, that that's not, uh... That's that's not me. That's That's been... That's been Jack every time. I thought that sounded familiar. I've only known him for a few years, though, and only spent, like, hours every single day talking to him, so there was... No way to actually know for sure, though. Yeah, well, now you know, and now that's out of the way. So let's get into our story, shall we? <sighs> I feel a load taken off of my bowels. Thank you. What are uh, what are we going to getting? Uh, what are we going to get into this week? Uh we're going to be talking about bullies. Up, one big piece of shit bully in particular. A uh, bully so vile that an entire town made the decision to overdose him on high-velocity lead pills. Ah, oh, does this guy have a first name strikingly similar to yours? <laughs> yeah, sure does. Buckle up, because we're getting ready to hit the roads with Ken McElroy and his old beat-up brown Chevy Silverado. Hit it. All right, I, I, look, I figured we'd start this, this story off with some... Some hometown uh, personal bully stories of our own. You ever have any? Have you ever had? Have you ever been bullied, or have have you ever been a bully yourself? Yeah, yeah, I have. Yes, and yes, actually. You want me to tell you about it? Yeah. Well, why don't you tell? <laughs> yeah, that was an invitation oh. for you to tell me about that. Now that the cat's out of the bag, to tell our listeners about that. Oh, <laughs> hi, listeners. Oh, that feels good. <laughs> yeah, don't act like it's the first time for you. Uh, well, I feel like a virgin. 
just like the first time I was a bully. Ooh, how about that for a segue? <laughs> oh, that doesn't really work, though. So, Well, okay, so I'll tell you one. Uh, yes, I was a virgin. I was third grade. Hopefully, still a virgin. I mean, it was really hard to keep the ladies at bay at third grade, but I was doing my best. Anyways, I was put into this advanced school. Like, it wasn't even like an advanced class. It was like this whole school. And it was like this really creative, like, um, weird experimental thing where we literally, like, sat on beanbags all day long and, like, played with labyrinths. You know, the little ball that you, you know, try to balance and have it go through the maze without falling into holes. This sounds like X-Man school. <laughs> it it kind of was. Like, there was no structure to it. There was no really curriculum, I don't think. But at the end of the year, I just had to submit this, like, journal with, like, all this, the, my observations, and maybe I was part of a CIA plot or something, now that I think yeah, about it. Yeah, this is starting to sound like, uh, what, 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 what was the thing that they, they think Charles Manson was caught up in? Uh, oh, for being a furry? No. Uh, that the government, the project, uh, oh. Blue, project Blue Book about the UFOs? No, I don't think that's what I was getting at. Uh, it so, anyways, you 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 got bullied. Well, okay. So th- now that I think about it, like it was this weird. It was like the X Men. It was like the X Kids because there was like this really weird Asian kid who like knew every single thing about military stuff. Which now that I look back on it, it seems odd. And there was a kid who was like this extremely brilliant like chess player. He was like big and dopey looking though. He looked like Tweedledee had eaten Tweedledum. You know, just sort of a he was sort of shaped like a hot air balloon except for his basket wasn't quite as low anyways so in this story i'm actually apparently the bully because i'm a super nerd at this advanced school right but this kid is like he has no social let's elaborate you're a nerd at an advanced school (laughs) like not (laughs) yeah exactly yeah that I was like, because at my school, all you had to do was be, to be a nerd was pass. Like that's it. Like you're a nerd at an advanced X Men school for kids that are overweight and just really smart. Yeah, <laughs> who are shaped like dirigibles. Yeah, it was weird. But anyway, so just collecting coins and and <laughs> oh, I was memories. Remember, one after the other. So he, this kid didn't really have any social skills. And one time, I don't even really know what happened. We were standing out front of the school, standing there. And he, like, said something really of- offensive to me. Probably really wasn't that offensive. But I was sort of bored. So I just turned to him and I punched him as hard as I could in the stomach. <laughs> and then I punched him again in the face. And But this this is the best part. Here's here's how it went. Like I heard him say his thing. And it was sort of like hi, <laughs> like that. And I was like, what? And then I punched him. And, and here's the sounds he made when I punched him. <laughs> and he just fell down. And then they like carted me off to the principal's office. And I was like, oh, I guess I'm a bully. The principal, by the way, was a, a bald man in a wheelchair. <laughs> How'd you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. I got probed after that. So my favorite part of this story, Op, is is the fact that you started you started it off with, apparently, I was the bully here. <laughs> and you led us to believe that 
it was going to be more whether or not you were the bully in this situation was going to be more cloudy. Like, oh. I don't know, was he? <laughs> but you said this overweight nerd kid came up to you and said something that you didn't quite understand. And then you punched him in the stomach and the face. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess I guess what I mean, apparently, is it's like. You know, like when you're just Joe public and then suddenly you kill someone, just like, just happens and you're like, whoa, that's weird. And then your whole life takes a hard right into prison. That's what it was like. Like I'd never really been a violent kid and then suddenly I'm just beating up this giant chess blimp. It was weird. Thinking about the loss of all those wheat pennies and... (laughs) This little shit's gonna get it. Exactly. Hey, fun fact to know and share. You ready for this one? You're in the military. You'll like this fun fact to know and share. Do you know what was significant about the year 1943 and the penny? It was the year before World War II, World War II ended. Yeah. So, in 1943, medals were so uh, they were all focused on military use, right? So, in that year, all the pennies that were produced were made out of zinc. So you can tell a 1942 or a 1943 penny because they look bluish. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Now we know um, that. We got okay. our penny. <laughs> I'm dropping penny facts. Penny facts. Penny fire. Every episode. He's dro- <laughs> spitting mad penny logic. I like to imagine that, that down the road we have at least three or four Patreons that are like, well, I mean, the content, it's it's pretty good. I mean, the crime stuff is okay, but I'm really just here for the penny facts. <laughs> well, what I didn't tell you is that Jack doesn't even know that I've been... I've started a another podcast on the side called Penny for Your Thoughts, and I just <laughs> talk about coins the whole time. It's so riveting. Oh, that sounds... Anyway. Agonizing. Um, (laughs) Okay, I've got one more story for you then, because that was the one where I was the bully. Okay, hit me with it. Hit me with it. All right. This other one where I was not only not the bully, I was absolutely oblivious to, like, all inherent danger in my life, apparently. So I was eight. I was living in Issaquah, Washington. Interesting note. Guess who else was living there at the same time? Um, uh, Let me hold on. Uh, Robert Downey Jr., no, think of a serial killer that killed a lot of ladies that all looked like. Th- Wait, what was that? What was the, what was the what was the town? Issaquah, Washington. Issaquah, Washington. It rhymes with Ted Bundy. <sighs> rhymes with Head Bundy. Yeah. Okay. I got nothing. <laughs> it's Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy. He, oh, okay. he was living there at the same time. We didn't hang out or nothing, but he was there. I was there, but I didn't meet him. I met my backyard neighbor boy who was older. He was like 16, 17, and I was eight. And I just, I don't know, I thought he was an older kid, so it was cool. And so this one time he's like, hey, do you want to come over and hang out? And I was like, yeah. So I went over to his house, and we like went up to his bedroom. And um, then I realized he's... Is this going to go into a place that you've had to talk to counselors about for 20 years? It kind of feels like one of those stories. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll creep right into it and you'll, you'll, it'll, it'll, it'll increase the suspense. All right. So we're up in his room and suddenly he says, Oh God, I'm getting anxiety right now. I'm getting legit. Yeah, this will, this will tell you how big of a dumb, dumb kid I was. I said, he said, what is something you hate to eat? And I was like, I hate butter. I, I can't eat butter unless it's like totally melted. I can't eat it. I, I just can't stand butter. 
So he proceeded to push me down and then tied me to the post of his bed, the foot of his bed. And I'm sitting on the ground tied to his foot of his bed. He went downstairs and got a whole cube of butter and brought it up. And he forced me to eat the whole cube of butter before he would let me go. But not all of it made it into my mouth because I was gagging and throwing up. So he'd pick the parts up that I was gagging on and he'd wipe it all over my face. And then he had his his um, <laughs> golden lab dog come in and lick my face clean. And then he untied me. And then he put me in his closet and he poured, I think it was probably just alcohol, but he told me that it was going to knock me out. And he poured alcohol on like a rag and then threw it in and closed the door. And I don't even remember how I got out of there. But this kid is dark and demented. I think he might probably be in prison now. I should look him up. But aren't you glad you didn't say semen? <laughs> I'm I'm super glad that that you know that was second on my list. You're right. I really dodged a bullet there. I just thank God that you hate butter more than you hate semen. Exactly. <laughs> I could think of a couple things like feces with corn. If I had said that, oh my gosh, would have been terrible. Ugh. Anyway, those are my two stories. I've got ten or eleven, but I'll just tell you those. Oh two. yeah, me too. So I happen to have one where I'm the bully, and and I happen to have another one where. I wasn't the bully. So the first one, when I was in like maybe, I don't know, I was probably like eighth, seventh, eighth grade. I was riding the school bus. I was a school bus kid, right? Yeah, me too. And I rode in the back of the bus with the loud kids because, you know, it was always the loud kids in the back and then like the semi-weird, like kind of normal kids in the middle and then the nerdy kids up front, right? Yeah. Where you sat. Your bus, your school bus just had a front. Just. A bus. <laughs> it was that short. It didn't even have back wheels. It was a unicycle thing. <laughs> All the seats are just to the side of each other, not to the back. Yeah. It's a very wide. <laughs> One back wheel like a tricycle that just, <laughs> that just flops like this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, a, like a shopping cart, bad wheel. Like a bad <laughs> wheel, yeah. <laughs> so just not to cut you off, but yes, I was such a nerd that when I started riding the bus, I thought the word shut up was the worst swear word in the world. And I got on the bus and like the whole bus was full of shut ups. Like every kid seemed to be saying shut up. And I just sat there with my hood on my head. And I was just like, I can't, I can't do that. Anyway, that's how big of a nerd I was. Well, I was the kid yelling shut up from the back of the bus. (laughs) So, uh, evil kid that swore. So it's like seventh, eighth grade, seventh, eighth grade. I'm, I'm getting on the bus. Now we had this, we had this girl that, that rode the bus, and I'm gonna—I'm not gonna use her real name because I'm sure she's doing great today. But we'll say her name was Bread Bundy. How about Bre- Bread Bundy? Bread Bundy? Yeah, it's a name. Okay, so this this poor girl, Bread Bundy. Uh, did you know her? Yeah, that was actually her. I, na- so. I wasn't gonna use her name, but beautiful, beautiful locks she had. She grew up in her like real Christian family. She she was always wearing like uh, denim long dresses. Oh yeah, you know very uh, very quiet, very yes. introverted. But she was a closet Satanist. Oh, <laughs> that is way scarier than like the emo like My Chemical Romance hot topic like Satanists. Uh, the quote unquote Satan. Yeah, like life is pain. I love <laughs> Satan. <laughs> 
macaroni and sorrow. Like those kids are never going to do anything. You know, like there's not they're not even worth picking on. Yeah. <laughs> but this girl fascinated me. Not in like an attractive sense. Mm. Because she wasn't attractive, but I was just so interested. So she rode the, she rode in the middle of the bus. She never talked to anybody. And the only reason I knew she was into this stuff is because when I would walk past her on my way to the back of the bus, she was always drawing like satanic shit on her folders. <laughs> really? And like the, the, what's the satanic star or whatever it is? Yeah. Uh, pentagram. It was just kind of like everybody knew like she was into some weird stuff. Probably listening to a lot of music that is satanic. I'm talking, like, people's music that you have to buy in, like, an alley behind a Taco Bell. Yes. You know, off off of a cassette tape from a homeless man. Like, that kind of music. Okay. So she's wearing her denim dresses, and she's looking all, like, little Christian sweet girl, and then there's this, like, anger demon brewing inside of her. <laughs> One day I get on the bus, and I'm like, hey, what's up? You know, doing the thing. And I'm not, like, I need to clarify, I'm not, like, a bully. I wasn't a bully in school. I got bullied and I did bullying. It was probably like a normal kid, like a normal like boy growing up. You know, I wasn't. It was like give and take. Yeah, right. I walked past her. She's sitting there drawing her like symbols or whatever in her folders. And I say something. I don't even remember what I said. It was just something like smart ass. And then I kept walking. Oh, what's up, bro? You know, like <laughs> high yeah. fives to my buddies in the back. I didn't even think about it. I can picture you. I can picture you. I know what you looked like. You were the kid that you probably had a sleeveless shirt on and your teeth were stained with the Kool-Aid that you had just chugged before you got on the bus. And, <laughs> and, uh, and your fingers smelled like peanut butter because you just ate a sandwich. So whenever I was in school, like Hollister and Abercrombie and Fitch oh. and all of that stuff was big. So I looked like a... Prep. I was I was going for I was going for like the LFO. Remember that song? Oh, I was yeah. going for like the LFO look. I had a seashell necklace oh. and probably some Air Force Ones. <laughs> and I, ha- I I used to get my hair frosted, the tips no. frosted. You remember when that was cool? Like when NSYNC was doing it? Are there pictures of this phase of your life? Dude, I've got pictures I'll send oh. you. Yeah, they're going on Patreon. <laughs> yeah, I'll try to find some pictures. They can okay. go up there. Deal. So Kyle, probably pretty douchey. If we're being, if I'm being honest with myself, okay, yeah. So I make a comment to this girl. I don't remember what it is, and then I make my douchey way back to the bus. What's up, bro? Did you catch South Park this weekend, bro? And I forgot that I even said anything to this girl. Like as I walked past her, I didn't even like paying attention to it. So we're riding the bus, yada yada. Time goes like kids one by one are getting off. We finally get to Bread Bundy's house. The school bus comes to a stop. You know. And I'm just kind of, at the time, it's just me and one of my friends in the back seat. Everybody else is off the bus because we were like the last ones to have to get off the bus. Me, Brad Bundy, and my buddy. <laughs> and she stands up, and instead of turning to walk towards the front of the bus, she instead pivots and starts walking back towards me. I look at my buddy, and I'm like, what the fuck is going on? And he's like, oh, no. She walks right up to me. She doesn't say a word in English. She takes her finger, she she pulls it out like E.T., her finger, and she makes an X on my forehead. Oh, my gosh. She traces an X on my forehead. She touches my forehead, and she makes an X, and she says some kind of thing and under her breath in, like, Latin. I don't even, it was like, and after she says it, she gets in my face and hisses like a cat. She goes, 
and then hisses in my face like a cat and turns around and walks off. And I'm just like, what was that? Did it sound like this? Was it like, <laughs> no, it sounded like something out of The Exorcist. Okay. Well, I look at my buddy and he looks at me. And I was like, what was that? He's like, I think she just cursed you. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, curses, am I right? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, but... Okay, so here's why I may have won the battle that day on the bus. She won the war. What I said to her, right, it may have hurt her for 2.5 seconds. <laughs> I am a 33-year-old man. If I'm walking through the house and I stub my toe, to this day I'll be like, fucking bread, Bundy! <laughs> that bitch! She's still getting me. 20 years later, she's still getting me. Oh, my gosh. She played the long game. That's Satan she for you. She played the long game, and I respect <laughs> she, that. That you do. You got it. She was committed to it. Probably did actually get committed. But So second bully story, and I'll make this quick because we need to get in our story. It didn't happen to me. I had a good buddy growing up. Whenever we were probably in our, I don't know, late teens, he's probably 18, 19. We had graduated high school. I know that in like big cities when when teenagers get their first place, it's usually a rundown apartment, right? Yeah. And my home down in Kentucky, it's usually a rundown house in a holler somewhere. Mm. And that's exactly what my buddy, I'll just use his name because he doesn't care. His name was Justin. That's what Justin. Bundy? He got this. N- not Bundy. Oh, no. weird. He was of no relation to bread. Okay. So he got this rundown house down in this holler in the woods. You had to go down a gravel road to get there. It was kind of secluded. And it was a shithole, like a total shithole. He didn't have any money. He was working all the time. You know you know how it is when you right after graduate high school? Yeah. He's working third shift, and after about a month of living there, every time he comes home in the morning, somebody keeps breaking into his house. And they're just stealing stuff. And really? after a while, it's like every night somebody's breaking into it. And after a while, they start getting bold. They start I'm not kidding. They start making like sandwiches. No. And then like dirty and dishes up. And I was talking to Justin and Justin was like, dude, I mean, I wouldn't even care. Like, I don't have anything of value to steal, but at least clean up after yourself. Oh my like clean up, like do your dishes after you eat my food. At the, it, it just feels, at this point, it just feels disrespectful. At first, when you started saying that stuff was missing, I was like, well, maybe if it's that repeated or that, that you know, that uh, successive, it might be like a raccoon. But then you said they're not doing their dishes. And I was like, no, no. this was a straight up burglary, like every night. Yeah, because raccoons are really clean. So he comes home one night and the front door is laying on it inside on, in, in the living room. Just laying out. So Dust, Justin just walks over it, picks it up, and pushes it back into the oh frame and goes to bed. <laughs> and that just became a knotly thing. He would just walk in, push his door back up. There was nothing left to steal. They took everything. <laughs> so he finally got, he's like, they just keep living, they keep, Kent, they, they keep living fucking dirty dishes. Like, I keep having to do their dishes, and it just feels, it's very emasculating, but I have to, they take my stuff, and then I have to clean up after them. When I get home, I have to do their dishes. So... Justin gets this big plan one night. He goes to his dad's and he buys a or he borrows a, a twenty two rifle. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he's like, I'm calling in to work tonight and I'm and I'm gonna catch him. So he calls Justin calls into work, he takes his truck, leaves it at his dad's, has a buddy drop him off, he goes and sits in the woods and lays down in the woods. So it's like one o'clock in the morning. He's laying there, he's diligent, he knows they're coming. And the next thing you know, he's waking up. And it's six o'clock. No. And he goes, he's like, I'm going to go to bed. And he walks over there, and the front door's laying in the <laughs> They had broken in while he was asleep in the woods. Did he ever catch him? No, never caught him. 
Oh Never my gosh. Him. That is that is so sad. Ended up moving not long after that because he didn't have anything left. I was going to say. Took everything. That was Justin's like schedule. He would like get home, he would do their dishes, and then he would go to bed. <laughs> he would do the Robert's dishes. I love that guy. And he's doing good these days. He's got a family and a nice house and a good. great paying job. Good. and. He's out of the slums, if anybody was wondering. Okay, so. good. I'm glad. Did he know Bread Bundy? Because maybe it was Bread. He did know He did know Bread Bundy. He knew her. Yeah, because we went to high school together. So, ah. yeah, he knew Bread. Yeah. Ble- bread Witch Project there. That's what's happening in the woods. So our story uh, that we're talking about tonight is uh, basically a Disney Channel Kid Defeats Bully story. If the Disney Channel did a show where the kids all get together at the middle school or what have you, and they're like, we got to do something about this bully, man. He keeps knocking my books out of my hand. And then the kids are like, let's fucking kill him. And then they just, like, blow his brains out in the bathroom. And then at the end, and then they walk out of the school and they do a fist pump into the air, a jump, and it freezes. There's, like, Disney songs in it, too. Like, look at this stuff. Isn't it neat? I just shot that guy right off of his feet. Hey, hey. There's, like, a Mickey Mouse comes in. Oh, oh, oh gosh. There's goddamn brains everywhere. Got rid of that bully, didn't we? So our story's going to end in 1981, uh, and it's going to take place in Skidmore, Missouri, in Nodaway County, which had, a, at the time, a population of 437 whopping people. What was going on in 1981, Up? 1981, well, Barishnikov was really big. Do you know who he is? Absolutely. That's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. I believe 1981. Who is that? Barishnikov was a very famous male ballet dancer. Are you spitting facts right now? Yeah, man. He really was. It's important for the people that are listening to know that the op does not know what we're going to be talking about. This is all pretty much ad-libbed aside from a small outline that I have. I know the story by heart. So so he just said that out of memory because you didn't know that I was going to ask you what was going on in 1981. So how did you know that? Partially because I remember the movie White Nights, which he was in. And I he's a, he's stunning. If you watch him dance, stunning. Okay, like I would drop my coins and I would just watch him dance. I'm going to take your word for that. So, okay, okay, I'll give you another one. That year, 81, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark came out that year. You know, I've never seen a single Indiana Jones movie. You haven't? You? Not one. Are you kidding me? Not one. That That is almost like an egregious sin, I would say. Yeah. I had never seen a Star Wars movie up until a few years ago. No. I... It's just not my thing. Not my thing. I didn't like Star Wars. I didn't care for it. So, so like... Sci- I don't get it. Like, sci-fi and fantasy, like, it's not a thing. Like, not, not your thing. No, no. No. I don't get it. Star Trek, don't get it. I gotta be honest. I go to for entertainment. I don't go because I know who the Sith Lord is supposed to be fighting or nothing. I don't know those things. I, I should clarify. I do love space movies, but I like space movies like Interstellar. Okay. Um, or The Martian. Or uh, Moon with Sam Rockwell, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Moon, that was a great one. Man, I love that it movie. It was a fantastic, underrated movie. Totally Not a lot underrated. Of people saw it. I agree. Go watch Moon if you haven't, people, now that everyone knows you're listening. I got a couple other things on 1981 that I remember. Oh, oh yeah, Let, let's hear it. Pope John Paul II, was, he, was, um, he was shot that year. Okay. Got shot. I can understand you remembering that. That's a pretty big deal. Okay. Wait, what year was John Lennon killed? Wasn't it December 8th, 1981? 1980. 
He died in 1980, December 8th, 1980. It was December 8th, though, wasn't it? So it was I almost was 1981. Very close, yeah. Um, here's one. Did, do you remember the movie Back to the Future? Oh, I love Back to the Future. Yeah, it didn't come out that year, but the, <laughs> <laughs> the DeLorean car was debuted in 1981. So mm. One of the coolest cars ever, still, to this day. Totally, still. And they're still not rusting because they're made out of stainless steel, so that's nice. So Skidmore, Missouri, Nodaway County. Population 437. Our story ends in 1981, but it starts way before that. We're going to be talking about Ken McElroy, and this little little bag of shit was catapulted into this world on June 1st in the year of our Lord, 1934. Or your Lord, or whoever's Lord, 1934. Okay, 1934, <laughs> good year. As I recall, Chancellor Dolphus of Austria was assassinated by the Nazis in that year. As I recall. So Skidmore is a small farming town. Like I said, it had a population of 437. It has one paved road and two stop lots. They had one grocery store. They had one little kind of recreational bar. And they had one bank and one gas station. And that was pretty much it. If you look at aerial photos, even today in the in the year 2020, it, it's still pretty much the same. It's just a little farming community kind of circle jerking the town. <laughs> The houses are just built around this small little town. Hasn't changed much. I was going to go for mosh pit, but circle jerk works too. Yeah. So Ken McElroy sure. is born into this little shithole town and June 1st, 1934. He was the second youngest to 16 children. This is a time when, uh, you know, it's, it's 1934, so that's in uh, World War II. So, well, how long did, when did World War II kick off? Uh, 1939 to 1945. Depression was around, kicking off, uh, also in full swing. Yeah, it was definitely not an economic boom. No, and the Nazis were on the upswing at that point, just hadn't started trying to... Yeah, they were mobilizing. ...kill everyone yet, yeah. The economy's not booming, things aren't going well, and this was a time, unfortunately, you know, they had 16 children, it's a time when you had to make your own employees. Oh, gosh. Uh, you couldn't just go out and hire them. A farming family, you know, they have to have a lot of, it takes a lot of, lot of hands to... To make a farm work, and, and you can't afford to hire people, so you just got to start putting that pee in that vagee. Wow. And, and making your making your helping hands. That's funny, because when you said that you had to make your employees, for some reason, my mind went immediately to the industry of prostitution and brothels. But that that's really messed <laughs> up. So, I'll go, I like your example, I'll defer to you and your farming concept. Okay. Now, you literally had to create your employees yes. with your own DNA, and they had to come out of, they had to be pulled from a vagina and Man. then placed in a cornfield. Put in, put on the combine and told drive. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So these 16 kids and their and their mom and dad lived in a three-bedroom farmhouse, and I'm I, that sounds just miserable to me, but. Yeah. It is. I don't know. Maybe they were happy. They were a poor family. Uh, they They weren't doing well. But they were getting by just like pretty much everybody else was in the United States at the time, right? Yeah, or not. Sure. Some sources cite that uh, at a young age, Ken fell off the back of a hay wagon and cracked a skull, resulting in doctors having to put a steel plate in his head. And a lot of people point to this as uh, the reasoning behind his behavior later on in life. Uh, you know, that's the, that's, this is a running trend with uh, serial killers and notorious criminals, right? Head injuries at an early age. Hey. Oh, not right. Head injuries. I thought you were saying they were all had hay-related experiences. 
no, working in hay isn't a, a common thing in the childhood of, of serial killers. That's not going <laughs> uh, Well, I just figured, you know, they, later in life, they have a lot of experience with bail. So, <laughs> mm. well, going back all the way back to the 80s, the early 80s, they, some newspapers report that Ken had this still played in his head, but his family are adamant about the fact that he did not, this, this was all made up. So I, whether or not it's true, I don't know. Either way, there's no excuse for his behavior later on in life. I just want to throw that out there, that maybe that's not true. Maybe I just lied to you on accident. So Ken had a pretty uh, normal, poor farm boy childhood. Uh, nothing like out of the ordinary in terms of abuse or anything like that. He He had to work. He had to get up early, go to work before school, and then when he got home, he had to go back to work in the fields. And that's pretty normal in, in the in the late 30s at this point. Dad was probably a hard ass, but so was everybody else's dad. This is the late 30s. This is People are still a little salty, probably. It's, it, it's reported that Ken hated school, and he also hated the other children. Sounds like a real likable fellow right from the get-go. You want to know something that I do know about Ken McElroy now? Because while you were talking, I googled, I googled it. So we know he we know he died, right? Did we already know that? In the autopsy report, there was no steel plate listed. That is actually genius, and it's not even something that I had thought of looking into. <laughs> that would have been obvious to a, to any kind of yeah. I'm looking at the drawing here and and listed lists all the all the things, including scars. Is that something that a mortician would list if it's an old thing, like from his? Yes. Yeah, they list scars and uh, uh, and other wounds or other or previous injuries that they can tell are visible. Um, partially, they do that because the cause of death could be something that happened before the, the death could have contributed to it. So, like, let's say you broke your leg and it had fused back wrong, and then you died in a car accident, but it was because of a bone spur from the bad break that cut your femoral artery. Just saying, you know. They'd need to. This is really genius op because I have, in the, in my research, I've watched all the documentaries, I've listened to all the podcasts, I've read all the papers. I've pretty much soaked in everything that you can about Ken McElroy, and I even looked at the autopsy report that you're looking at right mm. there, but I never made the connection to think to check for that. You just solved... Half of this case. No, well, not even half the case, but something that people have been... Uh, unknowingly lying about in podcasts yeah and news reports for years now and we broke that brought to you here folks right here there was not a still plate yeah a lot of the podcasters are like what can we do better and i'm like don't lie that's what i say to them don't make stuff up google it first exactly and maybe they do that in in hopes of Doing what I was going to do and providing some kind of reasoning as to why he turns into the big piece of shit that he does. But yeah, so he doesn't even have that excuse. Nope. Now he was just naturally a piece of manure. <clears throat> so he drops out of school at 15 years old, the eighth grade, takes the, the route in life that other people either don't have the ambition or, or the drive or what have you. He, he starts stealing hogs. No. Oh. Yeah, that yeah, it's ambition. It, a lot of people lack the 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 vision it takes to create a vision to, you know, step out into that industry. Now this keep in mind, this is this is uh let's see he was born in 34, he was 15 years old, 44. So this is 1949, 1950. A hog is probably worth a pretty penny. Yeah. At this like a full-grown hog. 
So what Ken does is he gets a, he gets his hands on an old Ford sedan and uh, takes the back seats out, lays some plywood down, and then he runs a switch to the back tail lights so that he can turn them on and off. So he can he's got a kill switch to the tail lights. And then he starts just hitting around all Missouri farmlands at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning and stealing hogs, throwing them in the back of this sedan that he's reinforced and then making a getaway in the darkness. Wow. It's like the uh, agricultural version of that documentary Tread about the guy that makes the tank. <laughs> this is the farm version. Uh, well, the difference in this and that is uh, they hit they hit that tank of Marvin Le- Niemeyer. Uh, with basically everything the National Guard has to offer, and I think that one well-placed five-five-six round into this Ford sedan. <laughs> yeah, it could have taken out McElroy and made bacon, and you could have had meals for like a week, three weeks if you're cannibals. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so from uh, stealing these hogs, he's he's stealing the hogs, he's selling the hogs, probably occasionally eating the hogs. He saves enough money to get a horse trailer, and then he kind of gives himself a promotion in his newfound business. To stealing horses, so he's working his way up the working his way up the animal chain, I guess. Where does it end? What does he does he end? Does he try to upgrade all the way to dinosaur trailer. <laughs> Who knows? Moving up to big game. Yeah, whales, blue whale trailer. Over the next couple of years, he racks up uh, just a ridiculous amount of charges. Uh, obviously, for stealing cattle, he was also stealing cattle, not just horses. Uh, he st- stole grain feed, more hogs. He got caught stealing fuel. He he robbed houses, and uh, he grows into to uh, another thing that uh, that a lot of other people that talk about this case try to do is over exaggerate Ken's size. Mm. Uh, some of them will say he was six twenty six two. That's not the case. He was five foot ten, two hundred sixty five pounds. Oh, so he was sort of a cube. Yes, uh, and if you look at pictures of him, he was built like a brick shit house. Okay, um, <laughs> that's what I was picturing. Well, I wasn't sure if it would be racially sensitive. So. And now all that means all that means is, is that he has a, st- a sturdy base. You could go underneath him for during a tornado. Now it is important to note that he was a farm boy. And I don't. Did you do? Did you play any contact sports? Yeah, growing up, pop. Yeah, I was the starting quarterback in my uh, middle school football team. I actually knew that. I knew you were a football player, which is weird because I. Just must have been going off of sheer skill because I know nothing about the game. It's important to note that he's a farm boy, and this is why. Oh, me and my friends did a lot of backyard, like, illegal, Sex. not safe boxing. Oh, yeah, okay. okay. Yeah, but that was just guys at, at rest stops, not friends behind the house, yeah. Just for body heat. And you probably did that. That's a pretty common young man thing, I think, you know, backyard boxing. of Your mom and dad get you a set of boxing gloves from a Dick's Sporting Goods and and you and your friends think. So, you know, we would have friends over and we would we would box. And I remember fighting this young fellow who was a farm boy like like Ken was here and thinking this guy just feels different when you hit him. And when he hits me, it feels <laughs> different. It's like <laughs> it hurts a yes. lot more. And when I hit him, it's just like punching a cinder block. You yeah. know, just <laughs> It's like his hands are made out of quickcrete. So this is uh this is five foot ten, two hundred sixty five pounds, but this is farm boy two hundred sixty five pounds. This mm. is brick shit house two hundred sixty five pounds. <laughs> this is Helen Hunt and Bill Paxton hiding underneath him to escape Twister F five two hundred sixty five pounds. Right, right, gotcha. Got a tall, dark, a handsome man. I'll be made. 
No one needs to know right now. You remember that song? No. Or that, that movie? No. You don't remember that movie? What was it? Was that the with mo- Helen Hunt and Bill Paxton? Oh, Twister. Twin- Twister. Yeah, I remember the Twister the movie. Was that a song in the movie? It was a Shania Twain song. It was on the soundtrack to the movie Twister. And Shania Twain is an angel, and I'm I'm legitimately angry that you don't know who that angel. Well, is. Well, I thought maybe we were coming across the newfound talent you have of just knowing all the musical scoring to uh, actual soundtrack music, which. Would be really rare. <laughs> well, my knowledge of soundtrack music to soundtracks is also fairly extensive. If I'm being honest, speaking of nerds, um, so okay, I got one for you. Which soundtrack is this? <clears throat> okay. I just wanted to see how long you would do that. Uh, well, that sounds like two cats fucking. So I don't know. His <laughs> last of the Mohicans. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That was my next guess. Okay. Yeah. Right. I was I was gonna say that or Braveheart. <laughs> so I think they used the same song in both. Actually, now that I think about it. So Ken is five foot ten, two hundred sixty five pounds, a farm boy, lean meat, and he looks like John Goodman had sex with Elvis's corpse. Wow. So. I'm not kidding. Look up a picture of this guy. <laughs> Looks kind of like a John Goodman with Elvis's sideburns and hair. Like a double chin that just produces Crisco. That's what I'm seeing. Just And I'm talking John Goodman during Roseanne years and not skinny John Goodman now. Yeah, the kind where he breathed through his mouth because the rest of his head was full of chicken fat. Chicken fat and phlegm. Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, so what's going on? Oh, hey, Rosie. What's going on? <laughs> imagine Elvis's hair and sideburns on John Goodman and Roseanne, and just imagine John Goodman just walks in and just beats the shit out of Roseanne <laughs> every single episode. <laughs> also, she's 14 years old. I would watch that show. Is it on Netflix? That's Kid McElroy's life later on. It's so fun. It's a TV show that's based on the girl, though, in this one. And, you know, like they, they, the TV show wants you to feel bad for. And, you know, it's like kind of facts of life kind of thing. And they call the show Beats Me. I see what you did there. And then the on the poster, it's just... Ken McElroy standing there with his arms up like this, like, oh, shucks. Ah, crap. And his knuckles are bleeding. There's a sequel called Beats Me Too. And it's, look what you made me do again. And it's his second wife. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if we can say any of this, but uh, we, oh, my heart hurts. So he married his first wife at 18 years old. She was 16 years old. Not that creepy. Not yet. But uh, not long after they get married, he starts cheating, which is odd coming from a man like this, right? Such a yeah. an upstanding citizen. Right. When he was 20 years old, and this is where it gets you, gets weird, and it's just consistently creepy and pedophilic for the rest of the story. When he was 20 years old, he starts cheating on his wife with a 13-year-old. Ew. Yeah. It gets worse. Her name was Donna, and he got her pregnant, and she ends up giving birth to a baby boy. Wow. But by the time that baby boy was born... Ken was already dating another girl who was 15 years old named Sharon. Did he work in like a daycare or something? How did he? You know, I always picture, I think Ken McElroy was like Matthew McConaughey in Dazed and Confused, only he hung outside a middle school and not a high school. I was going to say, yeah. Okay. Because he consistently 
predators, 12, 13, and 14-year-olds. They're all in that age group, every single one of them, and it's a lot. Wow. Um, throughout his life. That's terrible. It's like he has a, almost like an age group that he's a pedophile with. Right. Um, wow. So, uh, like I said, they gave birth to a boy, and by the time that boy was born, he was already dating another girl named Sharon, who was 15 years old. Let me slow you down for one second on this. How in the world okay. does he even get through one of these teens without going to jail? How is that possible? Oh, you just asked a question up. Oh, you're going to ask that question 200 times oh, in the story. Gosh. Oh, Because it's not just this. Try, well, well yeah, let's we'll get just, there. Try, how about... How about three attempted murders? Wow. Never never saw the inside of a jail cell. You're kidding me. It gets real wacky. Okay. Um. So he's dating this 15-year-old named Sharon. He's beating her pretty regularly, and then in one argument, he's like, nah, I don't really care for this, and uh, he shoots her in the neck with a shotgun. Whoa. That'll kill you. Uh, well, he had birdshot. Uh. So it injured her pretty badly, but... Uh, she was in the hospital for, for some time. Okay. Didn't kill her, though. Darn Still it. never did a day in jail for that. What? How? It gets worse. Okay. March 4th, 1955. March 4th, 1955. This is the first time that Ken McElroy catches uh, a statutory rape charge. Okay. And this was on a separate 14-year-old than the other ones that he was already diddling. Whoa. He was immediately released on a $1,500 bond. Ken was 21 years old at the time, and those charges were dismissed on the 29th of March, 1955, after the 14-year-old girl refused to testify and denied all previous charges. Now, we're going to find out later that um, Ken is notorious for using intimidation tactics uh-huh. to silence witnesses and get them to, to take back charges. To recant their... To not press charges, to recant their claims. Yes. It's it's like his, his go-to. And he does things like park in front of the, their house, he'll follow them around... He points weapons at them. He later in the story gets a hold of an M1 Garand or Garand, as as a lot of people call it. Yeah, and uh, that's that's like his go-to weapon. He's a punk bitch. He's only a a tough guy with his fists when it comes to women. If men are involved, he has to have a gun. Oh, uh, okay. Much like much like Richard Speck, he bullies uh, this young fourteen-year-old into not testifying and denying all the previous charges. Uh, not long after this, he divorces his first wife, Sharon. They already had two kids, one boy and one girl, and Ken apparently beat her on the regular, too. Man, divorce just sounds like it'd be a vacation. Like, you know, just like you're you know, getting released from jail to be divorced from that guy. Oh, Exactly. I would rather be in jail. Yeah, well, you would be in jail if you were married to him, it sounds like. You know, imprisoned with that crazy guy. Wow. Now, try to keep a tally here. He's got three kids, right? Yeah. The year is 19... He's got three kids already. The year is 1961. Ken is 27 years old. And it is at this time that he starts dating a 13-year-old named Sally. What? How in the world? Right? Oh. Yeah. So, it gets weirder. Sharon and the kids are still living with Ken. While he's dating a 13-year-old? While he's dating this 13-year-old, he moves Sally... They're, they're divorced. He moves Sally into the house with Sharon, his ex-wife. And their kids. And he's having sex with both of these girls who are underage. And all their kids are there. And everybody's just living in this house together. And he's just having a little pedophilic orgy on the regular. My question is, where where did this, prior to living with, with McElroy, where, where did this 13-year-old girl 
live? Didn't she? Did she have a family that like was like, oh, where, where, why isn't she in her bed anymore? These first couple of young ladies, there's no information on them oh. uh, in in terms of their backstory. Oh. Uh, I would imagine a lot of that was probably protected, yeah, because they were minors. Okay, all right. So in 1964, he leaves them all. He leaves Sally. He leaves Sharon. He leaves his kids. And he moves in with a 15-year-old named Alice Wood. What year did you say that was 64? 1964. Okay, before that, they were living together in, like, what year? 61 is when he starts dating Sally and moves her into the house with him and Sharon. So this is three years afterwards. Okay, yeah. So so basically, they just aged out is what happened. He got bored because they became actual humans. Yes, that, that, does, that does appear to be what happened, yes. Wow. So 64 comes along. There's another little 15-year-old that he meets named Alice Wood. Now, 15 is a little older than what Ken prefers. Ken's 30 years old at the time. They start dating. He he beats her on the regular, and he also gets her pregnant. So after she gets pregnant, you know, Ken's knocking her around Jeez. like a pinata. And uh, baby's squishing around, and it's fucked up families. Everything's just already on the, on the downhill for this for this child. <laughs> But uh, mom's 15, she's pregnant, she's getting the hell beat out of her by a 30-year-old on the regular. She eventually, little Alice Wood, eventually runs away with the kid after she has the kid and moves in with her mother and father. Now, Ken isn't having any of this. None of this. Huh. How do you think this goes? What do you think he's going to do, Up? Well, my guess would be he's probably got experience at this point in keeping a loving family at bay, a protective family at bay. So he probably aims a gun at the parents. Oh, you hit the nail on the head. Ken actually, Ooh. Ken calls her dad and he lets lets her dad know, hey, I'm coming to get my son and I'll kill anybody that tries to stop me. Ken then shows up. He's a coward, right? So he shows up at nighttime and pokes around the outside of the house, gets up to the living room window and shoots her dad in the leg through the living room window. Oh, so he does shoot. Okay. Yes. Ken gets charged with assault. And then, just like he's done in the past, he starts his harassment techniques on on uh, Alice's dad. He seems to have a warped sense of ownership, similar to uh, Carl Tanzler. You know, like that's mine. Yes, exactly. Weird, crazy. This guy possesses all of the personality traits of anybody that you've ever thought was a piece of shit. Mm. He starts his harassment techniques. This doesn't actually work on Alice's father for a, for a good period of time. He holds out until Ken starts pulling knives and guns on him, and Alice's dad is finally like, all right, I dropped the charges, just leave us alone. Yeah, the bullet wound to the leg would probably be a bit of a game changer, I would think. Yeah, he's already shot him once. Oh, uh, God. Alice just kind of stays with her parents, and that's how that relationship fizzles out. Friday, September 18th, 1964, Ken catches his second statutory rape charge. Jeez. You heard that right. Another 14-year-old. Oh, I can't believe this. And this time he's released on a $5,000 bond. Ken is 30 years old at the time. So, interesting. Like, I'm trying to do the math in my head on whether or not that's a significant amount of money. But, you know, he'd have to put up $500 in order to get out on a $5,000 bond. He'd have to put up 10% of it. So 500 bucks. Man. Yeah, I'm actually I'm glad you brought that up. Um he, he was notorious around town for having wads of cash. Okay. He had a very lucrative thieving business. Mm. He was he was doing well in the thievery. The thievery. Okay. So he gets out on a $5,000 bond. He's 30 years old at the time and of course, what do you think happens with the charges? They get dropped, maybe? 
They get dropped. What? You got it up. Man. You're seeing a theme running here. Yeah. It's after this trial that Ken uh, hooks up with his big Kansas City lawyer, Mr. Richard McFadden. And uh, he, he brings this big, this hotshot lawyer from Kansas City uh, down to, you know, little Skidmore, Missouri. And uh, from here on out, Richard McFadden, Ken's lawyer, will just steamroll anything that Ken gets involved with criminally uh, in, in courts. Wow. And Richard McFadden uses a pretty sleazy sleazeball technique by just appealing the shit out of everything. And while he's appealing everything, Ken is just uh, harassing and intimidating to try to get them to drop the charges. Yes, so it would do two things. All the appeals would give Ken the time to harass and would drain the other party financially because it would it would exactly which wasn't an issue for him right it would it stretch the trial out stretch the court proceedings out wow Ugh. now if you watch any like uh interviews or anything with richard mcfadden it, this man is repulsive it's like watching job of the hut yeah speaking of star wars we we're talking about star wars early that seems and and richard mcfadden defends ken you know how like this guy is just a scum of the earth just I hate him almost more than I hate Ken McElroy. When you you know hang out with true crime all day long, you run across a lot of like the machinations of lawyers, and most people I think sit somewhere on the fence. Like, well, I'm glad the law can be manipulated like that because if I was ever in that situation, I'd want to be I don't have best representation. But boy, when it's when it's the other way and someone bad's getting getting a good deal, that's that's hard to see. If you type in Ken McElroy's name in newspapers.com. And all the way from the time that he's about 13 to 14 years old to the date of his death is page after page after page after page after page after page. Uh, it's every single year almost charges, 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 Jeez. brandishing a weapon, assault, threatening somebody, um, intimidating a witness, uh, you name it, you name it, stealing, theft, never was... Charged with anything ever, though. He never got a guilty verdict. You know what's interesting about that? You know what that whole playbook is? That's the mafia playbook, but it's all like one guy in this case. You know, it's very funny you say that. Mm. Uh, Mm. There are rumors that Richard McFadden, Ken's lawyer, had ties to the Kansas City mob. Okay. Because I was going to say, that's how they do everything. That's why they're always innocent. You know, the the trials always get, they fizzle out and stuff because of all that. Yes, and and it also explains why Ken always had so much money, because there's also rumors that because Richard McFadden had ties to the Kansas City mob, Ken was also running drugs for the Kansas City mob. Uh. Which would explain, he had wads of $100 bills on him at almost any given time. Wow. I thought about becoming a drug runner at one point, but then I got into podcasting and became a hug runner. (laughs) <laughs> you wouldn't think it's dangerous, but you try hugging people in this day and age. Both of those things make people hard, though. Yes. I see what you did there. So we're in the late 1960s now. This is when Ken gets a hold of his uh, his trusty M1 Garand, or Garand, as people love to call it, which is a thirty out 6 military-issued... Semi-automatic. Semi-automatic eight-shot rifle. World War II and Korean War, I believe. Pretty much a staple, right? Yes, and we even used it up to Vietnam. There were some soldiers that carried one in Vietnam in the early stages of Vietnam. That's the rifle, right? I think that's the rifle where, like, in the movies where it got, became very popular, you'd hear, like, shoot, 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 ping, like, ping. Yeah. I was actually going to bring that up later. Yeah, and, you know, I, I really love the M1. Uh, I really do. But you want to know the worst quality that a rifle can have if you're in a in a close combat and you're you're facing off with somebody? 
your rifle having an alarm letting people know that it's empty. <laughs> That's a good point. I didn't think about that. Yeah. If somebody's shooting at me with an M1 and we're in a close quarters, I'm just going to wait. Pop, 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 ping. Okay, I'm coming out now. Now, an M1 can be reloaded fairly quickly, which is probably a good thing. But Ken also loved to... Now, this is next nerd level. He loved to sometimes fix a bayonet on the end of his M1. Oh, wow. And walk around town with a bayonet-mounted M1 Garen, just eyeballing people, daring them to say something. Do you hate this guy yet? Yeah. Here's the thing, is I hate him, and at the same time, I know my, my level of luck, as you can tell by my cube of butter story... That, like, if I tried to do one thing that this guy did, I'd be in jail. I'd be in prison. I know it. Oh, for the rest of your life. Yeah. But some people, they're just so, like, I, it's diabolical. I think that's the word. It's like you, your brain cannot wrap around how someone like this can exist freely. You cannot count on two hands how many 12, 13, and 14-year-olds Ken openly had sex with and was never charged with anything. Oh, That is... Absolutely bananas to me. Amazing. Anyway, speaking of uh, pedophilia, 1970, Ken meets Trina, Trina McLeod, who is at the time 12 years old. What? 12 years old. Her parents are a little are a little bit more protective, so he just starts grooming her. He starts buying her gifts. He hangs out with her, walking her home from school, like waiting for her. And uh, and then when she's 14 years old in 1972, that's when he starts making his move and they start messing around. So he's uh, he's sleeping with Tina, who is 14, uh, and then her parents find out. And they immediately press charges of child molestation and, yet again, a third case of statutory rape. He's 40 years old at the time. This is his third statutory rape case that he's been involved with. This is not even counting the huge number of, of underage girls that he slept with that were he was never charged for. Cool. It's unbelievable to me. Oh, it's getting ready to get real crazy because when Ken finds out that they press charges for child molestation and statutory rape, he starts his typical, you know, intimidation methods. First off, they find out that Trina is pregnant, 14 at this time. This is his third statutory rape charge. The parents have pressed charges of child molestation and statutory rape. Ken's like, well, I mean, I got to start my old tactics, right? So we got to really step it up for this one. Oh, it gets worse. Uh, Ken steps it up. Uh, the, the normal... Parking in front of the house, staring them down, waving a gun around stuff. Isn't working with this family. They're too damn stubborn. So instead, he goes over one night and burns their house to the ground and then shoots their dog in the face and kills it. Jeez. If you ask me, uh, I mean, the dog part, that's that's tacky. Yeah. It's yeah, it's not necessary. It's in bad taste. He seemed to have anger issues. So he burns the house down three days before the trial. Three days. You know what else happens in these three days? The parents sign a consent form allowing Trina to marry him, meaning they could no longer press charges. And because Trina married him, she couldn't testify on those charges. So the charges were dropped on October 23rd of 1974. Here's the thing. As a guy with kids, if somebody got mixed up with one of my kids and I was trying to free my child from them, and that person burned down my house, there would be no end to the amount of uh they'd have to pull me off of that person there's no way i'm signing a consent form nope i don't know that's the opposite of what i what what i would have done i have a boy and two girls and you will find me in the ground before you find a 40 year old man running off with even my 18 year old daughter no kidding you'll put me in the in the fucking ground 
because I'll die. Uh, and I'll kill him with me. Yeah, that's the other thing that's interesting about this is that uh, oftentimes there's there's like the anti-hero, too. The guy that you hate to love, but he's willing to take out the bully. That there wasn't like another opposite version of Kent in this town. Go get Randy. Let's get Randy. Randy, why won't you take care of yeah, him? Yeah, there's not. You know, there isn't What's one. What's that movie with Stephen Baldwin? The Usual Suspects. Where? Uh, or maybe Biodome? Stephen Baldwin plays like the anti-bully. The Flintstones. He was in the Flintstones back in 2000. And this kid that's getting picked on hires him. It's from the early 80s. No. Zebra Lounge, 2001. No. Um, And this kid hires him to beat up his bully. Earthstorm. Oh, that's going to bother me. You on IMDb right now? Jesse Stone, Night Passage? Stephen Baldwin. The best Baldwin. Half-baked. It would have been done before Full Metal Jacket because he was uh, he was a teenager in it and he played Animal in Full Metal Jacket. My Bodyguard. The Bodyguard. My Bodyguard. Yeah, My Bodyguard. My Bodyguard. That is a good movie. You should check that out after we get done here. My God, what a great movie that is. Talk about a bully getting his ass kicked. So the, the parents signed a consent form. Trina, Ken marries Trina. And the charges are dropped, October 23rd, 1974. So now he's got Trina. He, she's his property now as far as he's concerned. And they want... And in, in, in the midst of all this chaos that was going on, their baby got taken by, by CPS. So he wants his baby back. They want their baby back. They try to get the baby back, but it was denied. So Ken's like, well, I can just intimidate in the foster parents. So he goes to the foster parents' house. And uh, he starts watching they, their, their biological child for a few days, gets a hold of her, her schedule, follows her around, and then he just knocks on the door and he says, I know what bus she rides. I know where she goes to school. I know when she goes to school. I know her entire schedule. And if I don't get my daughter back, you're not going to get your daughter back. Oh, really? Wow. But the good news is they got their daughter back. So uh, I'm talking about Ken and Trina. Oh, yeah, good. Jeez. Oh, gosh. Did CPS give it back or just like... The family did. Family, of course, naturally. Now, I don't know how how that stuff worked in the 70s. Probably a little bit different than now. But whatever he did, it worked. He scared them into... He got his kid back. Mm. By the time it's all said and done, by the time Ken meets his maker, he will have had four wives and he has over 15 children with different women. Amazing. He has 15 children with children. Yes, yes. And three of those kids will be with Trina here. You know, that's disgusting. Who is now his fourth wife. Uh, I'm sick to my stomach thinking that somebody like this could walk the earth. Yeah, without any consequence whatsoever. So let's fast forward a few years. It's more of the same with Ken McElroy. More trouble, harassment, intimidation. When he gets charged with something, he just intimidates you know, he was walking around with his... Everywhere he went, he had his M1 Garand with him. And a lot of the times, he had a bayonet fixed to it. He likes flashing his money. He loves flashing this money that he got from stealing. He's flashing money in front of the people that he stole from to get the money. So imagine how they feel. He's real flossy. He likes rings. He likes that lifestyle, that fla- that flashy lifestyle. And then when everybody gives him a sour look, he puts a gun in their face because he's a big pussy. And he won't do anything without a gun. He really rubbed people the wrong way. That's what I'm getting at. He's like a brick outhouse with Christmas lights on it, 
and an electric fence around it. Basically, that's that's Ken. Yes, yes, exactly. Razor wire tree. What a lovely person. That brings us to July 26, 1976. So an old farmer named Romaine Henry is on his own property. Uh, he walks into the house. It's evening, 5.30 actually. And he starts hearing gunshots back on the on the back side of his property. So he's like, well, I need to go check that out. He hears shotgun shots. He gets in his truck, drives out there, and wouldn't you know it, it's Ken McElroy. He's back there shooting pheasants. Out of season, mind you. So Ken's sitting in his truck, shooting peasants on Romaine Henry's property. He had slaves? Not not peasants. Pheasants. I was kind of just dumbstruck there for a minute because you're like, shooting peasants out of season. So Ken's back there shooting peasants out of season on Romaine Henry's property. I don't think I don't think Ken cares that it's out of season. I, I think that's the least no, of Ken's worries. That's, right? I'm out. That's what I'm outraged about. Yeah, right. Exactly. Jeez. I read all these charges about having sex with these twelve year olds and the drugs and the assaults and all that, and I was like, well, you know, people make mistakes. But then I said, pheasants out of season. Get out of town. You don't shoot upland fowl out of season. Unforgivable. That's the final straw. So Ken just completely floored by the fact that somebody would be so inconsiderate that they would interrupt him while he was trying to shoot these these fowl on somebody else's property. Yeah. It's just he just sees red. He just can't fathom somebody being such a douchebag. Romaine tells him to get off his property and stop shooting and Ken yells, "You shouldn't be back here snooping around on his own property." <laughs> on his own property. Yeah. Mind your own business, old man. <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh, I forgot to say. He also shoots Romaine twice, once in the stomach and the second time in the head. Is that before or after he said, mind your own business? After. He says, oh. you shouldn't have been back here snooping around, and then he shoots him twice. Now, the first shot lays Romaine's stomach open pretty badly. He's He had a beer gut. You know, this is an older man. He was in his, uh, I, believe he, I believe Romaine was in his 60s at the time. <clears throat> wow. Romaine just kind of gets back in his truck. This is farm boys, like we were talking about earlier. He gets in his mm-hmm. truck and drives himself to the hospital. <laughs> Runs out of gas, fills the tank with blood, finishes the trip. Somehow he survives. Wow. He survives. Seven, Amazing. Like late 60s, survives. Uh, meanwhile, the police department's looking for Ken. And uh, a few days later, his piece of shit attorney, Richard McFadden, negotiates his surrender. I'm just curious. Do you know, was he shooting pheasants with an M1? Uh, it was a it was a 410 with birdshot. Okay, 410. Because, okay, that, that makes sense. With an M1, you're just, you know, basically making pink puddles. It was a breakdown 410. Okay, all right. Yeah, all right. Double barrel. So the PD are looking for Ken. His attorney negotiates his surrender. And Ken is charged with assault with intent to kill and then released on a $20,000 bond. This is the first time it actually makes it to court. Mm. First time in all his charges that it actually makes it to court. So in court, Ken Ken claimed he was never there. He he never did any of that stuff. He had two construction workers work doing a project for him at home, and he was overseeing that project at, at home. And then he uh, he threatens the two construction workers. He was going to kill them if they didn't testify that he was there. Uh, meanwhile, while this trial's going on, it lasts several days. Ken's out on bond. He starts uh, parking in front of Romaine Henry's house. To intimidate him into dropping the charges. How crazy is that? He shot this old man twice, 
and now he's trying to intimidate him. It doesn't work, but unfortunately, because of the fact that Ken had two uh, two witnesses say that they could account for Ken at the time of the shooting, even though Romaine Henry was saying no, it was the middle of the day. I looked him in. The, I had a conversation with him, and then he shot me twice. Guess what happens, Op? Dropped. Declared innocent. Oh my gosh, declared innocent. That's even worse than just dropping it. Declared innocent. Walks away a free man. No punishment whatsoever. Hey, I'm wondering something, and maybe you don't know this. I don't know this, so I wouldn't be I wouldn't be offended if you don't. But this is this is the the 70s, right? Y- yes, yes. This is the 70s. They had ballistics back then, and I realize 410, you know, it's bird shot, so it's, there's not going to be ballistics on the pellets. But it just blows my mind that they couldn't associate the the the, the rounds that were shot. No, I guess, eh, unless they had the casings. Never mind. I just answered my own question. You have to keep in mind, the entire town was terrified of yeah. this man. Yeah. Jeez. The entire town was terrified of this man. And I think that that played a lot into into how things turned out for him. So, if you're keeping count, this is three people that he shot now over his life? Three people. My goodness. All with 410 birdshot, too. All with 410 birdshot, yes. So far. Next few years are in and out of the co- in and out of courts for Ken like normal gun related charges theft always found innocent always using intimidation if he wasn't found innocent to get them to drop the charges this goes on for several more years in 1978 Ken buys a Chevy Silverado brand new right off the lot cash with stole with money that he stole now it's important to note that a that a childhood acquaintance of Ken's a guy that grew up with him said that quote he wasn't the kind of man that would fight you out in the street. He used a gun. It's like I said, Ken puts on this big show, you know, and it worked for these people, apparently. And I believe that deep down he was a big coward. Because he'll put his hands on a woman, he'll beat a woman, but when it comes to a man, he has to have a gun before he's got a spine. I'll even add to that. Relationship-wise, he can't even hang with an adult woman. He has to hang with children. He has to have children. Amazing. Yes. What a coward. Total coward. This is a total coward. Like a walking jelly jellyfish spine coward mm-hmm. that has to have a gun before he has any kind of, of brawn to him whatsoever. And he always has a gun, though. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. He always has a gun. That's a thing. It makes you wonder, well, no, I guess nothing's ever stuck. So there wouldn't be a law that prevented him from having a gun because nothing ever stuck. Nothing ever stuck. Yeah. April 25th, 1980, this is when we get the famous candy store misunderstanding. And this is the, the first domino that that down the road ends in Ken's death. On April 25th, 1980, two of Ken's daughters, ages 4 and 14, are in the, in the, in the little locri- local grocery store owned by Bo Bowenkamp and his wife, Lois. They're in there by themselves, 4 years old and 14 years old. Uh, at some point... They, they pay for their goods, and as they're trying to walk out, the four-year-old grabs some candy. She, she intentionally tries to steal some candy. The clerk, working at the, at the time, tells her, put it back. 14-year-old sister gets mouthy with the clerk, and then goes home and tells Trina. Now, it's gonna, this is, <clears throat> I know this is rough to hear, but we're going to start hating Trina a little bit, too. Because by this point, she's in her 20s. They've been married for some, for some time now. And uh, and she's not much better. She's like trying to put myself in 
the the situation where she was present for all of these different trials and imprisonments and all that you don't go that long with someone and be completely oblivious to what they're doing you know it makes me think of like mafia wives but they were practiced in in turning a blind eye there's no way in a town that small that she would be oblivious to what ken was doing constantly so she's yeah there's she's disturbed Absolutely. Or there's, what do they call it when you develop a love for your captor? Stockholm Syndrome. Stockholm Syndrome. Either that or it's like this is the worst case of Stockholm Syndrome that has ever happened because even after Ken's death, until her dying day, she she defends him. She Okay, all of these kids were groomed to a certain degree. And when you're that young and that malleable, I'm not, I don't want to give her a total pass, but yeah. Okay, but what you don't know yet, what I'm... What I'm getting ready to bring into the story is Trina helps him in some of these intimidation tactics. She also oh, likes okay. packing a All gun right. around and putting it in people's faces. Boy, I don't like this lady. Oh, yeah. And, and she gets worse, too. But. So this 4- and 14-year-old, they go home, and they're like, hey, Mom. She's like, what? You little piece of shit. She's probably holding a Budweiser can. Yeah, upside down, pouring it on the ground on a baby. <laughs> they're like, little poo here, which is probably what... That's what I imagine, like this this white trash family called before it, Lil Pooh. Lil Pooh, yeah. Lil Pooh here tried to get some candy, and and they had the nerve to stop us. And Trina's like, they did what? I'll be goddamned if they stop my baby from stealing. You stay here, Lil Pooh. <laughs> and then Trina, Trina takes her white trash ass up to the grocery store. Gets in Bo Bowenkamp and, and Lois Bowenkamp's face. The, now, these two are over 70 years old. And she says, congratulations, you're about to meet Kenneth Rex McElroy. And then turns around and walks out. Oh, my out. gosh. Oh, my gosh. I don't like this lady. So she's like, he's like her little pit bull. Yeah. You know, or her little cowardly pit bull that has to have a gun. Yep. Like, oh, wait till you see. I'm going to get my man in here. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> snap, 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 head swivel. <laughs> you done fucked up when you said something a little poo. <laughs> <laughs> I really hope that's her name, the kid. So, of course, she goes home and, and tells Ken. He's like, I'll take care of it. And then he spends a few weeks harassing the Boeing camps. Just his normal stuff, parking in front of the store, waving a gun around, you know, and, and just... And and, it, and it's worth noting that just parking in front of the store had a, a major impact on their business because people were afraid of him. Yes. Oh. So they took a, a profit hit. I'll bet. Yeah. I mean, that would be worse than having construction on the street out front. Yeah. Now, at one point, I thought this was pretty funny. Lois and Bo pull up to their store. The windows are down. Ken pulls up beside him. He's got Trina's white trash ass sitting in the passenger seat of, the, of his new Chevy Silverado. He pulls out a big stack of $100 bills, and he peels one off of it. He looks Lois in the eye and he says, I give you $100 if you can take Trina out there in the street and whoop her ass. So Ken, so Ken tells the 70-year-old lady he'll give her $100 if she can beat the tw- the 20-year-old up? Yes. Now, you, now it's even funnier when you take into account this is a 70, mid-70s church-going lady. <laughs> like, this is like the kind of you know, sweet little in the choir yeah. Like, very conservative, kind of, like, judgmental, church-going. <laughs> there isn't a week that goes by where, in one instance or another, she hasn't used the phrase, as a Christian woman. Yes. As a Christian woman, we don't let little poos steal, steal candy. And what kind of name is that? That's the name of the devil. So she's clutching her purse with her pearls. 
you know, in the seat, and then Ken's big redneck ass pulls up, and Trina's sitting in there probably with a Confederate flag fanny pack. Uh, believe it or not, Lois turned down his offer. After a few weeks of this harassment, uh, I guess Ken had finally had enough. He could not believe that they had disrespected his family in the way that they had and not letting his daughter steal candy from their grocery store, so Ken decides he's going to kill Bo. So his name was Bo Bowenkamp? Yeah. Bo Bo? Bo Bowenkamp. And this man just looks like the most classic old man farmer that you could possibly imagine. And this is a very loved family. It's important to note this is a very loved family in the community, the Bowen Camps are. So poor old Bo Bowen Camp is sitting on the back porch, the loading dock to the grocery store. It's really just a set of double doors that go out to a, an elevated back porch. And the back side of this is facing farmland. And what Bo, one of his favorite pastimes, he's an old he's an old man. He likes sitting on this porch, this loading dock, and just watching the world, you know, just relaxing. Listening to the birds, watching the fields, and loving the fact that people are enjoying his grocery store. And he's just living an old man life, you know, just kind of waiting to die, really. Not bothering anybody. And then here comes Kenrex McElroy. He comes hauling ass in sideways in his truck around the back of the store, pulls up, hops out. And starts rolling his sleeves. He says, you want to fight, Bo? Bo is in his 70s. And Bo calmly responded, I reckon I ain't got no reason to fight. <laughs> Ken, him being the pussy that he is, he probably thought, oh, thank God. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, thank God. Because <laughs> he'll only say that to somebody in their mid-70s. right? He would never say that to like a 30-year-old or a woman. Yeah. And he, he'll blindside them because he's afraid they'll get a good shot in. <laughs> the lucky one. True. When Bo says, no, I ain't, I ain't going to fight nobody, Ken goes, all right. He reaches into the truck, pulls out that trusty double barrel, points it at Bo, and he's standing there for a minute pointing at Bo, and Bo decides last minute, I think he is going to pull the trigger. And when Bo jumps to the side, that's when Ken decides to pull the trigger and blows a big chunk out of out of Bo's neck, severing an artery. artery. Oh, gosh. Ken turns around, gets in his truck, gets in his truck and, and leaves. So now, like I said, Bo is a very loved member of the community. Somehow he survives. He passes out, and before he passes out, he tells his wife, who is holding him thinking he's going to die, that Ken McElroy did this. Ken is uh, caught down the road by the police, arrested, and charged with attempted murder, and then immediately released on bail. Amazing! Why do they keep doing that? Yeah. Who's running that jail? Oh my gosh. So, I want to throw something in at this point real quick. If you notice, I think Ken is such a pussy. I think he's such a coward. I think he's so spineless that not only is he afraid to to confront a man one-on-one in, in fisticuffs, but I think he's also afraid to kill a man. Yeah. Not only is he getting birdshot, using birdshot, but he's constantly just winging them. Yeah, yeah. So I think he's like triple, quadruple pussy. Mm. Like super cowardly. Because um, you can't kill a, a mid-70s defenseless man at point blank range <laughs> in a chair how in a chair how quick could he have moved out of the way let me show you let me do you an impression of an old man getting out of the way quickly <laughs> that's how i pictured it <laughs> boom oh damn i, I kind of missed <laughs> lucky i only had one shot in my double barrel you're lucky you have those 70 year old crap like reflexes I think that he knew he wasn't going to kill him with the with the shots that he intentionally took. He he was just in the business of scaring people. Yeah. Because he didn't ever want to actually have to back up anything that he that he that he talked. 
Or totally agree. Ken's arrested and charged, then immediately released on bail. Now, while Bo is recovering in the hospital, the town preacher visits Bo, prays for him, does all that stuff, whatever preachers do. Ken finds out about this, shows up at the church with Trina. What? Why? The pastor steps outside of the church one day, and Ken's standing there. They've both got guns aimed on him. Because he prayed over Bobo? Because he was praying for Bo. Trina and Ken both let the preacher know that if they ever visit Bo again, they'll kill him. They'll both kill him. Ugh. I hate these people. Oh, hold on a minute. <laughs> it's about to get even spicier. Come on. Someone killed this guy already. The town marshal, David Dunbar. Ken finds out he's going to testify that it was Ken McElroy that shot Bo Bowencamp. Ken McElroy puts a weapon, a gun in his face along with Trina. Tells him if he testifies, he'll kill him. David Dunbar refuses to testify. Also resigns as marshal of the town and starts installing cable for the cable company. Oh my gosh. (laughs) What's wrong with these people? Oh, everyone in this situation is like dysfunctional. (laughs) Unbelievable. Not only does he refuse to testify, he quits his job as marshal and starts installing cable. When I signed up for this job, I thought we would, at, at, at the worst, have to deal with a hay bale on fire <laughs> set on by kids around Halloween once a year. Now, while Bo is in the hospital healing, Ken is staying at the local bar and constantly bragging about how he's going to finish Bo off the second he gets out of the hospital. He's going to finish what he started. He's going to kill that old dumb son of a bitch that stopped his four-year-old for stealing all the candy that she wanted. The nerve of that old piece of shit. Uh. I'm blown away. I'm so, like, who would he even talk to that would be like, yeah, Ken, all right, Ken. <laughs> the, the whole town would just be like, oh, hold on. July 10th, 1981, Ken's charges are brought down from attempted murder to assault. And then Richard McFadden appeals the decision and his trial is delayed. How does that um, happen? You just shot somebody in the neck with a shotgun, and they're calling it assault? Oh, uh, you're also forgetting the entire time he's in the hospital, he's saying he's going to finish what he started. He's going to kill him. Very open, very blatant open about the fact he's going to kill Bo Bowencamp the second he gets out of the hospital. You know who I'm starting to see is the biggest problem in this town? Who's that? I hate to say this, but the judge or judges, because really, come on, nut up. (laughs) Good hell. <laughs> now, half the town showed up for this trial because they thought, we're finally getting this parasite out of here. When they hear the decision, not only is not going to get charged with attempted murder, the charges are lessened and it's been appealed by his piece of shit lawyer. We're not going to get any justice again. This isn't going to happen again. So the townspeople leave the courtroom that day in, in a bad mood. They end up meeting at the Legion Hall. So while the townspeople, the angry townspeople, are meeting at the Legion Hall, Ken and Trina, hey, they're celebrating. They head down to the D&G Tavern, their hangout spot. Well, you know what, Op? Let's, uh... This is where the pinnacle happens. Let's let's let Jack take it from here. Okay. Here he comes. It's high noon. Skidmore. At the top of town is perched a run-of-the-mill Legion Hall, an oasis for those who have a whistle in need of wedding but are 
uncomfortable downing a lunch hour drink at the dive bar down the hill. Besides optics, the main concern about frequenting said bar, D&G's was the name, is that Kenneth Rex McElroy's pickup truck was often parked out front, like advertisement for a bad time. The legion was half filled with concerned citizens who took turns at a long table, airing their frustrations with the so-called justice system. The theme, as per usual in this young summer of 1981, was how to cope with the town bully. They were at a loss and furious, the consensus being that McElroy was about to receive yet another slap on the wrist that would, in turn, hit them square in the face. Sheriff Estes is in attendance, as is former marshal and resident Yellow Belly, better than Buckshot Belly, I suppose, Dave Dunbar, who was easy to spot in his lime green cable guy cap. The two were maybe there to advise the frustrated crowd as to how to best remedy the issue of Ken. And the timing was certainly suspicious when the sheriff excused himself to drive 20 miles out of town, following word that McElroy had taken his seat at D&G's, flanked by his young, wild-eyed wife on one side and his trusty M1 rifle on the other. Ken, surprisingly, didn't have the bayonet attached this day, though he was apparently talking shit, as per usual, and word was that the other patrons at the bar were looking about ready to do something about it. The news seems to flip a switch, and soon the Legion pint glasses, as well as the old hall itself, are left empty. McElroy, meanwhile, is doing his darndest to appear unfazed by the heavy atmosphere inside his local haunt. Something isn't right, though, and Trina gives him all the excuse he needs when she asks if they can go home. The large man slowly rises, intentionally swinging his rifle round so it finds the eyes that have been burning a hole through the back of his head the last 15 minutes or so. A period of time he'd spent smoking two cigarettes, drinking one beer, and contemplating how many fucking slack-jawed yokels he could take out with the M1 before one of them found the nerve to fire back. Ken surprised, maybe even spooked, when the other patrons rise as well. Then follow him to the register where Ken buys a six-pack, then saunters towards the exit, though stiffly, his young bride looking behind them in near panic at the sinister group that follows them. The timing is supernatural. McElroy squints into the sun and is surprised to see a flock of townsfolk approaching his truck as he exits the dark bar. He scoffs at the scene and is not concerned so much as amused now. There is no reason to ask what the fuss is about, he knows. The only real question is just what the fuck are they going to do about it? McElroy slides into his truck, flashing his brownish teeth at the crowd. Trina gets in too, but is not nearly so confident. Something is incredibly wrong here. And she's certain Ken feels it too. Though you'd never know it by the way he's lighting that cigarette or by the way he's starting the engine as if as if he's about to back out over the people who now have them blocked in. 
Ken reaches casually for the stick shift and his teeth explode through his cheek. Cigarette flying from his sneer to meet his big bean chiclets on the dashboard. Four rounds, comprised from two types of ammunition, seem to hit the instantly deceased man at once. McElroy's foot drops dead on the accelerator and the engine revs madly as Trina is removed from the vehicle then hustled away in the faceless wraith cloud that is the people of Skidmore. It will be 40 minutes before an ambulance is called, but only five before the truck dies brutally in near imitation of its owner. A sound like a shotgun blast announcing that enough is enough before the insanity is finally snuffed out. Silence wraps itself about Skidmore, so tight that the blanket still stifles any truth about who committed this small-town assassination, or whom, to this day. So that, Op, was the end of Ken McElroy. And I gotta say, it was a satisfying end. Yes. Wouldn't you? Uh, yeah, I just was so relieved to hear. This piece of shit finally got stomped. And this is the part in a podcast that I've heard in the past where they go, No, we don't just, we don't, uh, there should never be vigilante justice. Mm-hmm. And they try to act sad. I'm not going to do that. Fuck Ken McElroy. I'm glad that Skidmore did what they did. He that is, This is one less shit stain on society. Good riddance, Ken McElroy. As humans, when everyone breaks into a target or everyone shoots one person, it seems to divide the guilt down into such fractions that it's totally manageable by the individual. You know, you just brought up a story, something interesting. I've heard, and I don't know if this is true, that in olden days, whenever people that in the military that got death by firing squad, yeah, that oftentimes. Whether it be ten or fifteen people firing on the on the individual, only one of them would have a round, a live round, and they never knew who it was. Right. In the firing squads. So that the guilt of whoever killed him was dissolved because nobody ever knew if it was really them that had the round that, that killed the person. That seems like the ultra civilized way to do it. Personally I prefer to walk back a couple generations where everyone has a round. And you're going to turn the person into Swiss cheese. That's my kind of execution. Yeah, I want to know that I helped with that. <laughs> Although, if I have to pick an execution, I've always been a fan of just the good old-fashioned guillotine. Yeah. I think there's just something romantic about that. If I was going to get executed, I would choose guillotine. I do have a fucked up story about guillotine. So, uh, I think it was in the maybe the early 1800s, two scientists were obsessed with the idea of how long does a human have consciousness uh, after the head is separated from the body, right? One of the scientists got diagnosed with a terminal illness, and he volunteered. I'll do the guillotine. The second my head hits the basket, pick it up, I will blink as many times as I can until the light goes out. He blinked for between like seven and ten seconds while the other scientist was holding his head. There's also rumors that one of the queens, Queen Elizabeth maybe, whenever she was executed by guillotine, the executioner picked her head up by the hair and slapped her cheeks, and she made a... An embarrassed face. The the head made of like an embarrassed facial expression. Like it got blushed. <laughs> like it blushed, but it also made uh, like an actual like a like a star- like an angry face. Oh, really? Like a startled face. Yes. Well, yeah. I know that there was a doctor who 
witnessed a prisoner get beheaded, and that prisoner's last words were, will I be able to hear the rush of blood in my ears? That was... Um, Henry, French last name. <laughs> I can see his face. I can see his... F- Heineck? No. No, 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 no. His head is currently on display in a museum split in half. Yes. Because they studied right. his brain. And it's still currently in a museum. I'll draw it out. Uh, Henry Langwill. Lang, 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 Langil? Langil? Langwill? Langwilly? Uh, Jack did an episode about him on Dark Topic, I believe. Really? Jack. I believe. Uh, that show. That's a good show. <laughs> you ever heard it? I've heard it. So, let's get back to Skidmore. Now, Skidmore is no stranger to vigilante justice. I need to point that out. In the early 1900s, a beautiful young teacher was beaten to death, murdered in her schoolhouse out in the countryside in Skidmore. And there was a gentleman in town that was known for being violent. He had he had assault charges uh, in the past, and they just assumed it was him. So they this this angry mob, this vigilante mob, went out and grabbed him. This is real creative. I'll give this to him. They they dragged him out to this schoolhouse. They went up to the roof, and at the point of the roof, about a couple inches down on each side, they cut a leg-sized hole out of the roof. Then they dragged this man up to the to the rooftop, put one leg in each hole, and then tied his legs together inside the schoolhouse. So he's essentially riding this schoolhouse like a horse. Uh. There's no way for him to get down. And then they light it on fire. They watch him burn. So... They burned the schoolhouse down? They burned the schoolhouse down with him riding the roof into hell. Oh my gosh, that is extremely creative. Wow. <laughs> it is very creative. I was impressed with their creativity. Uh, and, and this is the first case of some Skidmore vigilante justice uh, in the murder of this, this young teacher. Oh, sounds like he deserved it. Oh, yeah. Oh, wait. There's more information on this. Oh, shit. I, for, I left some stuff out. Uh, he was the only black man in the town. Oh. Uh, I should have brought that up. So. That's pretty important information in this case. Anyways, how do you feel about this? They. I mean, just a minute ago, you said it sounds like. They eat this. I mean, I didn't. I'm, I don't want to put words in. I didn't say that. No. No. I didn't. I'm just saying, Op, you, you sound pretty. I don't know, man. I'm I'm just. It's a real dark story. I think we just let that one, yeah, probably just leave that one alone. This is the first lynching story involving a white man. Let's go out on a limb and say that... Let's not go out on a limb. Let's not use that phrase, <laughs> let's go out on the limb. Oh my goodness. <laughs> We're going to get fired from everything. Oh, I don't remember where I was now and I don't want to leave you hanging. White guy. We barely have a leg to stand on. Oh, Okay. You know, like Jack said, Ken and Trina, they go to the DEG Tavern. They're confronted there. They're they're met face-to-face for the first time in Ken's life. People are pushing back. They have had enough. And he's scared. He's got his M1 with him, but this time it ain't working. Nobody's, nobody's backing down. And Trina says later in interviews that she was very scared. And I think Ken was, too. I hope he was. I like to imagine... That he was. I got to imagine she had a gun too. You know, she she probably did. It, it was never said, but uh, a lot of times she did. Yeah. It's also in, important to note these town people. They all came from the Legion Hall, which is just right up the street. Right up the street, it, it, you can see the the Legion Hall from D and G Tavern. 
Um, it, it's probably, I would say, a football field away. Mm. Okay. They're in the Legion Hall, and right after Ken's trial, where they realize there's not going to be any justice again, and everybody's just had enough. They're like, he burned down my house, and you know, he assaulted my dog, and he he put a gun in my face, and he stole my cattle. He married my twelve year old. He married my twelve year old, and then some old man stands up, and he's like, he made me watch him masturbate. <laughs> And everybody goes quiet for a second, and then the old man sits down because he's embarrassed. Oh, okay, I won't. Uh, all right, I, I asked him. I asked him to. Fine. I asked him to do that. And I'm all right with it. He told me not to say nothing, but okay, I'll leave. It was just for body heat. <laughs> now, uh, Danny Estes, the sheriff of Skidmore from 1980 to, the, to 1984, is uh, a part of this meeting, and halfway through, he leaves. He He decides... He's got business elsewhere. Wink, 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 wink. Uh-huh. I don't know what y'all are going to do about this, but I do know that Ken is down there at the D&G Tavern right now, right down the road from this <laughs> Legion Hall, and I don't want any trouble to be had. Now, I have to go far away, and I'm the only law enforcement here in this town so everybody better behave. Ken and McElroy's down there at the at the, at the D&G Tavern. I'm going. Right down there. Look. Everybody look out the window. While I'm away at my interview with the cable company, I don't want any. Me and Dave Dunbar, your former marshal, are going into business together. <laughs> There's a new startup company called Spectrum. I know you all haven't heard of it. We could get you in on the ground floor. <laughs> you could be making 10 figures by Tuesday. So this mob, like I said, you know, they come down there. Ken, Ken and Trina are coming out of the bar. As Ken and Trina are coming out of the bar, the mob is coming down the hill, and the and there's also a mob following Ken and Trina out of the bar. So he, they're kind of sandwiched between this mob, and they circle him. Ken gets into his truck, lights up a cigarette, and then his teeth, his brains, and a bunch of meat end up on the dashboard. Now there is a part in Jack's piece where he mentions that the truck was on when Ken was killed. His foot hit the accelerator and ended up blowing the engine. That is a part of this story that I have not been able to confirm nor deny. Many sources say that that happened. Some sources don't mention it at all. No sources say that it didn't happen. So it's one of those kind of iffy parts of the story. We'll just put it into the apocryphal bucket for now. We'll put it into the bucket. Yeah, maybe. The maybe bucket. But according to a lot of sources... Ken catches that bullet, his foot sticks on the accelerator, it redlines for a, a minute or so, and then the engine blows on that big, pretty, brand-new Chevy Silverado. And then the crowd of between 30 and 60 people, that number varies depending on what you're reading, what you're hearing, they just kind of fuck off and leave. <laughs> they just kind of walk, and then Ken's corpse lays there in his truck in, of the, in the parking lot of the ENG Tavern for 45 minutes before anybody ever calls an ambulance. That's how much he was hated. Where was his what what his wife do during that? Uh, halfway through the confrontation, the gunshots, the truck revving, uh, one of the townspeople runs up, opens her door, pulls her out, and then runs her up the street to the bank for protection uh, while they finish Ken off. I would have run her through, not run her up the street. I would have run her through. Yeah, she kind of needs to go with him, honestly. She did pass away in 2012 on her birthday. Yay. Now, uh, people speculate there were definitely at least two shooters. Without a doubt, there were two shooters. There could have been up to four shooters. Ken was hit a total of four times. He was hit once in the back of the head, once in the neck, in the back of the neck, and then 
twice in the back. There are some theories that one of the shooters was across the road with a high-powered rifle uh, on top of a balcony. Me personally, I subscribe to the theory that it was a Lee Harvey Oswald from the book Depository Building. Yes, I agree. I was about to say the same thing. From the grassy knoll. Obviously, somebody is murdered. There's going to be investigations. Trina says, hey, I saw Del Clement, who was one of the citizens in the town. Real cowboy, Dale. I like this guy. Just a real southern. He was real stoic, Dale was. Uh, didn't talk much, um, aside from the fact that he was an auctioneer. So when he was talking, he was talking like a lot. <laughs> but when he wasn't talking a lot, he wasn't talking at all. He was either silence or... <laughs> but anytime you read anything on Dale Clement, he seems kind of like the guy that would... You know, they're talking, well, who's going to shoot him? You know, up there at the Legion Hall, and you hear, like, the spurs from Cowboy Boots. Just... (laughs) 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 Then it kind of starts at his feet, the camera does, and pans up. That's who Del Clement is. He's that guy. I like it. So (laughs) Trina kind of fingers him, not, like, physically. She doesn't put her finger in his ass. She, like, points at him. She tells investigators, hey, <laughs> she didn't finger this cowboy. Um, but she tells investigators, I literally, with my eyes, witnessed Dale Clement walk to his truck, pull out a rifle, and shoot my husband in the head. And they were like, mm. no, you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> really? They were just like, nah. No charges were ever filed. Everybody just kind of let this one go under the radar. Just uh, we could talk about the the long and lengthy investigation process that happened on both a county and the next county over level. There was another investigation. Uh, the entire town pretty much went into a vow of silence. They all came together. Nobody ever said a single word. This happened in 1981. It is now 2020. Thirty nine years. Nobody's ever said a single word about who who any of the shooters were. I'm conflicted. The Christian woman inside of me says, oh, you know, justice should be meted out. But then the whole other part of me says uh, it never was meted out in any of this story ever. So why start It's almost uh, poetic. It's almost a poetic yeah, ending. It's very Yeah, it reminds me of Shakespeare. Exactly. Um, exactly. <laughs> oh God. Oh fuck. No, I won't I won't I don't have a story for you. <laughs> Please, God. Don't do that to me. <laughs> I only do that to people that I know hate Shakespeare. <laughs> I love Stephen King. I'll talk to Stephen. I'll talk to you about Stephen King all day, but I can't. For the love of God, okay. off! I can't do Shakespeare with you tonight. I just, I can't. <laughs> There's a documentary out called "No One Saw a Thing," and uh, it is really a pile of hot five-part series dog shit. Uh, the last two episodes <laughs> are three. It might be a six-part. I can't even remember how many parts it is now, but I watched them yeah, all. It's a six-part. Yeah. The last three episodes is just. These people trying to attribute all of the horrible crimes that happened in Skidmore in the years following the the Ken Rex McElroy murder 
and trying to place a blame on the town itself because it's cursed because all these the the documentary tries to take take this approach where like Ken was a, yeah he wasn't a perfect man but he didn't deserve to be murdered like if anybody ever deserved to be murdered it was Ken Rex McElroy so yeah it sounds like they were t- trying to they were like oh what uh, what trendy thing can we can we use to uh, make this guy tie a victim the blame and guilt to this yeah, the town is the victim because uh, there was a racial injustice that happened at one point. A hundred something years ago, yeah. <laughs> Let's use, because cause that's, that's, that makes him terrible people, you know, a hundred years later. Yeah. And, uh, well, another revolting part of this documentary is they uh, constantly bring up old interviews with Trina. Now, Trina, up, like I said, up until the day she died... This is me doing an impression of Trina in every interview she ever did. He didn't do nothing. They's just jealous of him, that's all. They always blamed him for all this stuff, and any time he had to shoot somebody, it was self-defense. Kid didn't do nothing. He didn't do a thing. He was a loving man. He was a loving man. Fuck her. <laughs> Seriously. I don't swear, but I would say that I agree. I I say the same thing because the only person he ever loved were children. And that's enough right there to put that guy six feet, yeah, six feet under. Wow. Uh, they also, the documentary stoops low enough to bring up as many of kids, children that would agree to, to do an interview. And and one of them at one, they all have the same, they, they all talk just like Trina. One of them has the audacity to say, uh, his murder was the first time I was ever introduced to violence, and I don't know. Uh, I think I would be further in life if he hadn't been murdered. <laughs> wow. Let me ask you, when that person was saying that phrase, was there possibly like a Harley Davidson logo somewhere oh, in the house around him? You nailed it. Because he was wearing a, a biker vest. Okay. Yes. He really was. <laughs> he really, really was. He really was. Yeah, yeah. It seems like that uh, illogical filter of reality seemed to be passed down from generation to generation. The entire family op. Family. The entire family op. None of them place any personal responsibility whatsoever on Kim, Ken Rex McElroy. None of them. That reminds me very much. It's like a Hatfield McCoy kind of thing, where the other, the, the your side can do no wrong. There is no wrong exactly that can be done. Partially because they're so imbued with what we would see as an atrocious way of growing up, they they don't see it as violence. You know, it's it's gag worthy, and it's and it's even more so gag worthy yeah. because it's so blatantly obvious what the director of this documentary is trying to do. Like, you know. And uh, that's unfortunate because when you're given a platform like that to do something, like bring this story to the fore, that you would use it and try to, uh, I don't know, history won't look on that guy that created that see that documentary well. It'll be like, oh, you took an opportunity and you missed it. You tried to use a trendy, you know, you tried to race bait. The, the audience yes. into feeling bad for Ken. Yes. And that, that never, it's not going to, it won't hold, it won't stand the test of time, I don't think. It, it was, it, it was vomit inducing, that, that, 
that documentary was. It, it was, <clears throat> and it's also important to note that that even if somebody did come forth with the name today in the year 2020, there will never be justice served because it, it's highly likely, it's almost a certainty that after almost 40 years, whoever pulled that trigger has likely died uh, at this point of old age or cancer or or what have you. Is there statute? There isn't a statute of limitations. I'm on not in any state there? that I'm aware of. No. But okay. but yeah. even if it ever did go to trial, I, I almost guarantee you that everybody, even if there were four shooters and all four of them hit him, um, they're almost all guaranteed guaranteed to be dead at this point anyway from natural causes. You know what I would do, just to clear the conscience, is I would get all thirty or sixty people, whoever it was. Have them all admit to killing Ken, and then they each share one sixtieth of the of the of the uh, sentence. So they'd each like do like you know four days in jail. Yeah, <laughs> which is that still be, more time than Ken ever served. Like <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that would be poetic. That would be a poetic way to do it. They all just kind of oh, captain, my captain, the the end of this story, and the whole town's like, I killed him. Oof. Well, I hope it I helps you sleep at night off to know that nobody will ever pay for the murder of Rex, Ken Rex McElroy. He, he, his death will go unsolved, and there will never be any kind of punishment for it. Thank God. I gotta say, I, I honestly, I can't think of even killers like serial killers, and like there's, there's always connective tissue to the, from their life to like their upbringing or something. And I can honestly say there's very few people that I that I feel relief that they are dead. Um, but everyone seems to fail this town. Yes. Yes. Including the town failed. Especially the, the town. fail that ended up installing cable. <laughs> <laughs> Guess who probably got free cable? Ken Rex McElroy, Ken. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. Sure did. <laughs> he probably walked up there with anyway, a little well, poo, and he was like, listen here, you big old pussy. You're going to go put cable in my house, put a gun in his face. And he was like, all right, Ken, goddamn. <laughs> I, want, I want stars and Cinemax for free. <laughs> Fucking Spectrum. Um... <laughs> Op, I wanna, I wanna. It, well, it's been fun, Op. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get off the phone here, and I, I wanna leave, the, I wanna leave this story with, with an old saying that I think, one million percent hits home, hits home with this story, and it's very simple. Um, and then, and then we need to go. You ready? And I think you'll agree yes. that, that, and I, and I don't like to live, leave a, leave a story so seriously, but this is so fitting, and that is uh, the old saying, you know. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. Amen, brother. All right. Well, I'll uh, call you tomorrow. All right. That sounds good. Hugs. Huh? What?